gracious do I have a show for you I haven't had um you know a regular secular talk show in like a week because we had the debate breakdown for the last show so uh a lot of stuff has been happening in the world that we need to catch up on and this is one of those um this is one of those shows where every story is a story that I feel like I should be leading with so it's just non-stop uh hitting you over the head with substance So anyway, I really don't even want to do a little um, teaser here, but I guess I'll do the quickest one in human history. We got a lot of stuff on John Bolton. We got a lot of stuff on Saudi Arabia and Iran. We're going to go after Bill Maher. We got Joe Biden embarrassing himself. We got Tulsi Gabbard going on Rave Dubin. We got flavored e-cigarettes being banned, and that's that's all you're getting for a tease, but there's like triple that. So anyway, um, without further ado, let's get started here. And I'm going to pull up a video. You know, I'm getting really fucking sick and tired of this goddamn beeping, make beeping tin laptop. And just so everybody knows, and I'm sure you've had personal experience with this as well, this is one of those laptops that absolutely has to be plugged in the entire time because the battery is so shot that if you leave it unplugged for like 20 minutes, it craps out. So... It's a constant struggle to keep this little fucker plugged in, (laughs) and there's so much work stuff on this computer that it feels like, you know, I can't break up with it, but. There's no rhyme or reason to this fucking thing. Look at that. (laughs) That's insanity. 
All right, we got to plug back in, which who knows how long that'll buy us. Could be 30 seconds, could be two hours, who knows. All right, John Bolton. Let me pull up this clip. So John Bolton was fired about a week or so ago, and um, that, of course, is wonderful news. Now, the details of how that went down are a little unclear. So what happened after the fact was Donald Trump tweeted that, uh, no, the reason why he fired John Bolton is not because, and I just realized my mic is not actually on my body at this moment, so you guys are probably struggling to hear me a little bit live. Okay, what a mess. I'm, I'm a fucking mess. Anyway, let's start, that, let's start this over. Let's start this story over. So John Bolton was fired about a week or so ago, and um, that's good news. I mean, full stop. Good news, full stop. However, the details surrounding the situation are uh, incredibly murky and unclear. And um, what happened after the fact was Donald Trump tweeted that, uh, no, he didn't fire Bolton because Bolton is too hawkish. If anything, he's more hawkish than John Bolton and, uh, you know, Bolton was too weak on certain issues on certain countries, and he was holding me back. That was an argument that Donald Trump actually made. Now, why did he make that argument? Probably because at that exact point in time, he was getting most pressure from inside the establishment where, you know, these are people who are pro-regime change. These are people who are neoconservatives. So, you know, to try to save face in those circles, he's like... Bro, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm more hawkish than he is, so you know, I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, so, you know, if I had to speculate, I would guess that this had something to do with the fact that Donald Trump had invited the Taliban to come to Camp David. It was supposed to be on 9-11, which is kind of hilarious if you think about it. Um, now, I agree with the goal of trying to get out of Afghanistan ASAP. But I just don't think you need to negotiate with the Taliban to do so. I think you could just get out. <laughs> you don't need some sort of agreement with the Taliban. But they seem to think you do. And furthermore, the drawdown of troops that Trump was even talking about would still leave 9,000 U.S. troops there. That's not a withdrawal. That's not a withdrawal. Obama did the same stuff where he was like yo-yoing the troop levels and acting like when we had fewer troops in there, like, oh, I withdrew. No, you didn't withdraw. That's not a withdrawal. You still have thousands of troops in there. That's insane to treat that like a withdrawal. So anyway, um, you would think that this is an issue where John Bolton being gone, where we could all breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief. Not, you know, crazy or anything like that. Not uh, a long-term sigh of relief, but enough where the immediate danger of somebody who wants to start war with anybody and everybody right now, enough where that person being gone just brings a smile to all of our faces, and we realize, like, okay, even if we're 2% further away from war, we're further away from war right now. So, but that's not the case. What ended up happening was Democrats decided on a talking point in response to this, and that talking point is, look at the instability in this administration. So it's not, oh, thank God, John Bolton is gone. Okay, we dodged a bullet there. It's, oh, my goodness. There's very high turnover in the Trump administration. That's going to be your argument? 
So here's uh, Senator Bob Menendez on, I believe this was, what was it, CNN? Yeah, I think it was CNN um, talking about this issue. Your reaction to John Bolton being fired? Look, the unceremonious way that Bolton was fired adds to the dysfunctionality, the whiplash uh, that goes on in terms of, uh, you know, national security and foreign policy. Uh, look at the record. This is going to be the upcoming the fourth national security advisor, the third secretary of defense, the secreta second secretary of state, the second director of national intelligence, uh, and the list goes on. And so the Situation Room shouldn't be the place in which uh, the president plays uh, his reality TV show, The Apprentice. So it's, it's very hard uh, for our foreign policy and national security, both with our allies as well as sending messages to our adversaries by the dysfunctionality that the president has in the White House. I'm no fan of John Bolton. He's very bellicose in some of his views. But you need a national security advisor who's willing to give you alternative views and other realities uh, and not just uh, yes men in, in such a critical position. Listen, John Bolton is a literal war criminal. Literal war criminal. Okay, this guy has the blood of innocent Iraqis on his hands. He helped push this country into war based on flat-out lies. He was part of the Bush administration. He should be at The Hague right now, for sure. And you have the opposition party acting like, well, you know, I don't agree with the man, but agree to disagree. And you need different views in the room. For instance, you need a view that says it's a good thing to massacre innocent people. Wonderful to have that view in the room, yes, yes. You wonder why Democrats lose, how Democrats lose to these absolute monsters on the right. Because they don't believe in anything. They don't stand for anything. Bob Menendez doesn't have a principled bone in his body, hasn't thought through issues in a detailed way in his entire life. His default reaction to John Bolton leaving the administration was, well... A different view is less the room, and that's not a good thing. The instability, sir, in this administration. Instability. Oh, now, if you think um, that's bad, well, let's take a look at what the leader of the Democrats is saying. John Bolton's sudden departure is a symbol of the disarray that has unnerved our allies since day one of the Trump administration. Steady leadership and strategic foreign policy is key to ensuring America's national security. Steady leadership and strategic foreign policy. Is that what John Bolton represented to you? Steady leadership and strategic foreign policy. The administration is in disarray for getting rid of a war criminal. Just so everybody knows, this is why Justice Democrats exist. Now, uh, unfortunately, there were some questionable responses from some of them as well. Um, but we need Democrats in positions of power who are without question going to stand up on the side of de-escalation, negotiation, diplomacy, non-interventionism, 
This is something that's equally as important as it is to fight for Medicare for all and free college and a living wage. The foreign policy stuff is just as important as the domestic economic policy stuff. And we're just, I mean, this is the, the main line of thinking in the Democratic Party right now. They can't even bring themselves to recognize that getting rid of John Bolton is a positive thing, full stop. I don't care how he leaves the administration. I don't give a shit about the details. The bottom line is, all he was doing, every step of the way, was prodding Trump to do more war, more war, more war. Now, just for the record, this doesn't mean Trump is not going to do war. And we have some very disturbing developments to talk to you about um, in a little bit involving Iran and Saudi Arabia. But it can only be a good thing when you get rid of one of those voices who no doubt was prodding him at every turn to do more war, kill more people, drop more bombs, invade more places. And if you don't recognize that, you got a couple screws missing. So I would love it if people could just put the idiotic partisanship aside for just a second. I would love it if people would just put the idiotic partisanship aside for just a second and try to view things from an issues-based perspective. And I think regular people are a lot better at doing that when they have the information than some of these hardcore political junkies are and Democratic politicians are, because it's like they've been in this political world for so long that they just boiled everything down to playing for their team. And they think, well, whatever I can conceivably use to take a shot at Trump, let's use it. And so this is what they landed on. They landed on, oh my goodness, the war criminal leaving the administration unnerves our allies and shows instability and disarray. Ugh. It's just this vapid procedure mongering, process mongering. This idea that like, the norms, what about the norms? Fuck the norms. Who cares about the norms? I care about... You know, let's not cause more death and destruction around the world. Let's try to actually fix our problems. Let's not do endless war and pretend like that's a positive thing. So this was, at least for a brief moment there, good news. But like I said, I got some unfortunate updates on Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, But it would be wonderful if we had a Democratic Party that could recognize a good thing when they see it. Oh, boy. This fucking beeper. This fucking beeper, bro. All right. Hopefully that works. I'm sure it won't, but whatever. What are you going to do? Okay. Now we're going to speak about what's happening in Saudi Arabia and buckle up. So Saudi Arabia's oil fields were attacked. They were attacked. Oil prices are now soaring after drone attacks on Saudi Arabia's supply. So prices jumped up to 13%. 
And according to some estimates, up to 50% of the fields were impacted. So then the logical question is, who's responsible? Well, uh, we have a good idea because some people have taken credit for it. So the Houthi Yemeni rebels have taken credit for it. Now, let's reflect on this for a second. Because the picture that you're going to get in mainstream media is this. Totally unprovoked, Yemeni Houthi rebels did a drone attack on Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure. That is, I guarantee you, you turn on any news from a Western perspective, that's what you're going to get. And by the way, not just U.S. news. Turn on the BBC and you'll get that same perspective. They will not give you context as to what led to this happening. But that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to give you context. So why would Yemeni Houthi rebels do a drone attack on Saudi oil fields? Well, perhaps because Saudi Arabia has been massacring people in Yemen for years now. Starving 85,000 children, blockading the country, not allowing in food and medicine. There's a cholera outbreak impacting millions of people there. Or maybe it's not that, and it's just a direct military attack that Saudi Arabia has done in Yemen, where they've attacked open-air markets, they've attacked mosques, they've attacked hospitals and schools. Now, this is all on the record. I just need everybody to know this isn't, you know, Kyle giving his lefty spin on what's happening in the world. That's just what's happening in the world. Anybody who's followed this stuff closely knows very well that Saudi Arabia has basically been waging a genocide in Yemen. Now, I call it a genocide because of the, the massive, massive power disparity. Because one side is backed by the world's most powerful country and powerful military, and the other side, if they get any help at all, they get a little bit of help from Iran. So this is what's happening. What's happening is Saudi Arabia is waging an onslaught against Yemen. And Yemeni Houthi rebels have said, we attack the infrastructure to get them back for what they've done to us. So their claim is this is defensive. What, do you want us to sit back and just let Saudi Arabia massacre our people endlessly? And just, just so everybody knows, Saudi Arabia originally attacked Yemen because there was a power struggle with the Yemeni government where the Sunni government was ousted by a Shia government. That's the Houthi rebels. Okay, so they wanted uh, Sunni control and, and power in that region for themselves. So they decided we're not going to let this Shia Houthi government be recognized and we're going to go all out against them. So that's what's actually happening in the region. Now, again, I just gave you the backstory in a very short explanation. Go ahead, turn on mainstream news and see if they give you that information. I guarantee you they don't. The way they're going to portray this is, oh, woe is Saudi Arabia. They've done nothing wrong at all. Nothing at all. And they've been mercilessly attacked. Their oil fields are victims. <laughs> By the way, want to talk about a tame response? Attacking the oil infrastructure. Okay, again, stop and think about what Saudi Arabia is doing. Bombing hospitals, schools, open-air markets mosques, starving the country, blockading the country. And then the response is, well, drone attack to Saudi oil infrastructure. That's actually a pretty tame defensive response, isn't it? I, th I think it is. So um, 
there's a problem, though. And the problem is we know what's going to happen now. Even though the Saudi, or excuse me, the Yemeni Houthi rebels have taken credit for it, there's also people within the Iranian government who are also taking credit for it and, and celebrating it. And, it's, and just for the record, so everybody knows, it's very possible that Iran supplied you know, the ability for the Yemeni Houthi rebels to carry out such an attack. And it's possible they were involved in the attack. That is true. Now, but here's the thing. U.S. intelligence is going to uh, place it solely on Iran. But more importantly, they're going to act like it's, it's purely offensive when we just, I just explained to you, this is 100% defensive in nature, okay? But this is what they've been waiting for. Because now, look at what uh, Donald Trump tweeted last night. Saudi Arabia oil supply was attacked. There is reason to believe that we know the culprit. Are locked and loaded depending on verification, but are waiting to hear from the kingdom as to who they believe was the cause of this attack and under what terms we would proceed. So Saudi Arabia, of course, they're going to go, oh, Mr. President, that was definitely Iran. U.S. intelligence is going to go, oh, Mr. President, oh, that was definitely Iran. It's all on Iran, and it's, a, it's an aggressive act. It's not defensive. It's aggressive. And then Trump's going to say, okay. And there we have it. The thing that John Bolton had been fighting for, he was just fired, but the thing that he had been fighting for, he might, might actually get it. We're closer to war with Iran now than we've ever been. And I don't trust a single player involved in this to de-escalate. Because I got news for you. Israel's Netanyahu wants war with Iran. Saudi Arabian government wants war with Iran. Trump doesn't want to appear weak. And so he's going to want war with Iran. U.S. intelligence is going to be prodding the administration to go to war with Iran. But at least, thank God, we have the opposition party, the Democrats. Oh, shit. Now they're calling for war with Iran as well. Here we go. Here we go. We're there. This is madness. And again, I just, I need you to understand this point. The backstory which I led with, you will not be told in mainstream media. You will be told that it's, a, it's an aggressive act, it's an offensive act. Uh, Saudi Arabia did nothing wrong. Iran did everything wrong. And you're not going to be given the full context. And uh, what's hilarious is that there are old Trump tweets where Trump says very clearly, like, tell Iran to fight their own wars. It's none of our business. You know, if they want us to do anything for them, they should have to give us free oil. There's so much stuff that he said. You know, he, he said Iran uh, or Saudi Arabia is responsible for the 9-11 attacks. And now he tweeted in no uncertain terms, he's not America first, he's Saudi first. He said it. He said, I'm waiting for verification. What do you think they're going to say, Don? They've wanted you to take out Iran for such a long time now. Of course they're going to use this as the catalyst. Oh, my God, man. We're in, oh. We're in trouble. We're really in trouble. I don't see how they can de-escalate from this. I don't see it. Especially given the nature of what Saudi Arabia has already been doing in Yemen, what they wanted to do in Iran, the fact that Trump is nowhere near intelligent enough to think about this stuff objectively, to de-escalate. 
He wants to appear tough. And we've got to remember, everybody around Trump is prodding him in the direction of war. Nobody's prodding him in the direction of don't do it. Actually, you know what? We might, <laughs> we literally might have to hope that Tucker Carlson gets Donald Trump's ear. This is not a joke that's serious. Because you know he watches Fox News all the time, and he loves those hosts. Tucker Carlson might be the only person saying to him, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Oh, my goodness. Don't do it. Oh, my God, don't do it. I'm telling you, man, we're in trouble. This is the closest we've been to war with Iran in a long time. And we had the single biggest jump in oil prices since the Gulf War in 1991. Think about that. That is a red flag and a half. So I wish I had some sort of silver lining for this story here, but I don't. Even with John Bolton gone, we're still now somehow closer to war with Iran than we've ever been before. And we don't have somebody who is capable of understanding the situation and de-escalating the situation, and we're all worse off for it. Okay. All right. Bernie Sanders uh, had a town hall and did something so amazing that uh, we have to talk about it here. Where's my video? Where is my video? Here it is. Okay. So Bernie Sanders had a town hall a couple days ago, and uh, he quite literally ended up having to talk a man out of killing himself over medical debt. So uh, this is very emotional. The emotions ran high tonight at a Sanders Town Hall in Nevada. Let's take a look, and then we'll talk about it. Now they're saying that, uh, you know, I, I didn't re-sign or do something or something. How are you going to pay off? I can't. I can't. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill yourself. You're not going to kill yourself. I can't kill myself. I have Huntington's disease. You know how hard that is? You know, you probably don't, do you? I can't drive. I can barely take care of myself. I'll let you start later at the end of the video, okay? Okay. Annie, please tell us more about that moment and, and what happened after. Yeah, Don, so that was in Carson City, Nevada, Senator Sanders' first public event since the Democratic debate last night in Houston. And as you heard at the end of that exchange, Senator Sanders promised the veteran that he would follow up with him once the town hall was over. And as promised, as soon as the event wrapped and Senator Sanders took photos with whoever in the audience wanted, Senator Sanders, followed by his wife, Jane, walked over to the veteran to, to continue their conversation. And this really just shows what's at stake with this health care debate and what Senator Sanders, who continues to hold smaller events, more intimate town halls, allowing people to share intimate stories that they may not otherwise get the opportunity to share. Listen, man, 
This is why we call him America's dad. Because that reaction that he had there, what is a dad at their best? Okay, what's a dad supposed to be at their best? It's like, oh my God, I have this giant problem. What the fuck am I going to do? And dad comes in and we're going to work this out. We're going to do our best to to fix this. Like, it's it's a soothing, you know watchful eye of a leader who tries to step in and say, it's okay. It's okay. That's what a dad is supposed to be. That's what a dad is at his best. And uh, that reaction from him was just, that's America's dad. That's what that was. No, 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 no. You're not going to kill yourself. Listen, let me talk to you after the meeting, after the town hall. And he did. Now, not only did Bernie talk this guy off the ledge, and he did, but also, you know, highlighting this story, which is what happened. And for the record, you guys rarely hear me say the sentence, but I'm going to say credit to CNN for covering this. Credit to everybody for covering this who did cover this. Because what happened was people were spurred to act. And so people created a, a GoFundMe for this guy. $100,000 in medical debt. There was some sort of issue with his insurance. You know, he ended up owing $100,000. He's got this chronic illness. And he was screwed. And he saw no way out. And now people started a GoFundMe. And uh, he's going to be able to pay it off. And just so everybody knows, I looked for the, I was going to find the link and try to include it in the video description box here. I couldn't find it. I was only able to find, you know, the segments, the video segments. I couldn't find the articles. So if you happen to find that GoFundMe, please post it. Um, But this is our system. Our system is broken. Our system is disgusting. And as Joe Biden is wandering around talking about record players and telling stories about, you know, a gangster he put in line named Corn Pop, What's Bernie doing? Bernie literally is having to talk people out of killing themselves because they have $100,000 in medical debt. Bernie Sanders on his Facebook page posted something where it was like, you know, tell us your story with medical debt. What's the worst medical bill you've ever had? Tens of thousands of replies. Insanity. And then there were also people saying to each other, and they're right, hey, man, they don't have to deal with this in other developed countries. People from Australia were posting saying, I can't believe you guys have to go through this. At one time, I was in the hospital for three weeks, and it was zero dollars and zero cents was my bill. Got amazing care. We can fix this thing. We can fix this system. We can move in the right direction. We can catch up to the rest of the developed world. It's crazy that we have to be in a situation where a political candidate running for president is in the position that Bernie's in, where it's like, I have to talk this guy out of killing himself, and then we have to try to find a solution. You think, this is a serious question now, do you think Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Mayor Pete, any of these candidates would have been able to do what Bernie Sanders did there? Do you think that guy would have, uh, you know, thought that they were the best place to go to find help? You know the answer to those questions. You know the answer. The guy went to Bernie because he knew he knows Bernie cares, and he knows he's trying to fix the system. 
and he knows that he'd get a sympathetic ear. And Bernie did what he could and uh, is still fighting to try to change the system. So Because how many guys like this are out there? A lot. There's a lot of them. So if any of them happen to be watching this, listen, there's hope. There is hope. We're going to fix this system. We're going to improve the country. Medical debt is not a thing that should exist. That's not too much to ask for, just so you know. Like I said, every other developed country, you know, has a single-payer system, and medical debt is not a thing. Every other developed country. So this isn't a wild, pie-in-the-sky, crazy, lefty idea. It's really common sense. And we're going to fight for that system. We're going to win. But it's really amazing and such a stark difference when you look at this campaign. And you know who the real deal is, and you know who's faking it. And this is, you know, this is such a clear example of that. And what you just saw was America's dad legitimately being America's dad. And I hate to be such a fanboy at this moment, but what, what am I supposed to do? I mean, look at this story. This is insanity. Guy has $100,000 in medical debt, literally thinking about killing himself. Bernie has to talk him down from that, and then they have to try to find a solution. And people ended up doing a GoFundMe and, and helping this guy. And We need Medicare for all, and we need it now. You know, I got a story coming up later that you guys are going to love to hear. It's a story about how Donald Trump behind the scenes in private discussions is admitting stuff that proves our instinct is correct. Our instinct is what? Trump is more scared of Bernie than anybody else. Well, it turns out behind the scenes, he knows, he knows this. He says it. So we'll get to that, but this is why. This is why. The dude cares. The dude's fighting. And uh, I hope everything works out with this guy here because you don't want to see this. Nobody should have to worry about medical debt. Nobody should be put in that kind of a situation. It's flat out immoral, unethical, and wrong. All right, William Marr is going to get the secular talk treatment. So Bill Marr has uh, completely and utterly lost his mind, and that's become readily apparent on his show. He's somehow getting worse and worse. My private health care. It matters to me when you say we're going to open up the we're borders take away. Actually, we're going to give you and you but and every other American that's not what the free health care that's going to be paid for. Exactly, like in every other civilized country, yeah. you're going to get a lot of things if. if Right. Healthcare, which incentivizes 
Mike Moore, thank you for educating us. Sickness is what our profit motive is. The U.S. government taking over a sixth of the economy. And it's, it's, I, just don't have, I just don't have that. Kind of thing. Because they already do it. They, they take over, uh, they do the police force, the fire department, the libraries, the public schools. The military. You know, the military. Can I present a scenario? I think this might be one of those years where it's the West. The discussion Mike and I were having is that they can't get over that centrist versus socialist thing. So Elizabeth Warren at some point takes Bernie's voters, he drops out, it's Warren and Biden. And they go to the convention and it's deadlocked. This has happened before in American yeah. politics and they need a compromised candidate. I'm looking hard at Amy Klobuchar. You know why? Because, and like, the, it's not in your fault, Amy Klobuchar, I like you, but when they put generic Democrat on yeah. the ballot, credit to crystal ball there she absolutely educated bill maher and uh you know it's so rare these days to get a voice of reason on this show because bill maher usually invites his like keep it real really old out of touch wealthy liberal friends and they think that they like actually represent the left and they just don't and bill you just don't (laughs) so it's a, it was a breath of fresh air to have Crystal set the record straight there. Now, Bill Maher himself, I don't know what happened to this guy, man. I don't know what happened to him, but he has moved further and further and further right as the years have gone on. Now, you know, some have a theory that, hey, it's, it's because Trump just, like, broke his brain. That's what happened. In the Trump era, he just doesn't – he can't think straight now. I don't know what it is. I don't care what it is. All I know is he's making the shittiest arguments I've ever heard in my life. He thinks Amy Klobuchar could be the nominee because of, you know, a deal at the convention, and he thinks that would, that would get the left to fall in line because Klobuchar's a woman? Are you out of your mind? Amy Klobuchar has been running the most boring campaign in human history, She's stuck at 1%, maybe 2% max. Nobody likes her. Watching paint dry is more exciting than listening to her talk. Her positions are utter trash. She's a, a perfect embodiment and representative of the old school politics that led to Donald Trump getting elected in the first place. And again, as Crystal pointed out, that's your solution? But, Bill, we ran the experiment. It just happened in 2016. This idea of like, oh, the left is going too far. No, the center has gone too far. The center is way too centrist and corporatist. If the center was the way to win, we wouldn't have lost a thousand seats. If the center was the way to win, you'd have a President Hillary Clinton right this second. But you don't have that. You want to know why? Because they don't stand for anything. This is a thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently. You know, 
Say what you want about the Republicans. We have nothing but negative things to say about the elected Republicans, okay? But you know what they stand for? Of course you know what they stand for. Uh, uh, build the wall, fuck immigrants, uh, you know, cut taxes on the rich, deregulation. They're crystal clear as to what they stand for. Ask yourself what the corporate Democrats, what the centrist Democrats stand for. Go, go ahead. Answer it in your own head. What is it? Nothing. It's, I'll tell you what it is. It's Tom Perez. Oh, I'm for good things and I'm against bad things. I believe good things are positive and bad things are negative. All they have is platitudes and cliches. Break down the barriers, stronger together. Because they don't actually stand for anything concrete. Because they've triangulated themselves into oblivion. You know what triangulation is? Triangulation is this political concept that came about back during you know, the Bill Clinton era. Um, he was a new Democrat. New Democrats stood for, who me? <laughs> no big deal or anything, but I'm like above the political fray. So, you know, you got people to the right of me, the Republicans, then you got Democrats to the left of me. I'm a new kind of Democrat. I'm above the fray, and I find, I find common ground here in the middle. I'm Bill Clinton. <laughs> it's like a mix of Bill Clinton and Jay-Z. But that's what triangulation is. Oh, who, me? Oh, I'm above the tribalism. I'm like, I'm like in the reasonable center. And then what does that actually mean functionally? It means, oh, let me find all of the areas where the right and the corrupt sellout left agree to help corporations in the military-industrial complex and screw everybody else. So it's, it's agreeing to give away the farm on what your core values and policies are actually supposed to be. It's agreeing like, yeah, Wall Street deregulation is great. Cutting taxes for the rich is great. Giving endless no-bid contracts to military-industrial complex is great. Endless war is great. This is what centrism is. That's what it is. The way to defeat guys like Trump, especially the fake populist right, is with real populists on the left. The people on the left actually have a vision. The vision is Medicare for all, free college, living wage, end the wars, Green New Deal, legalized marijuana, so on and so forth. That's the way to win. That is absolutely the way to win. And like Crystal pointed out, in Texas, you have Bernie beating Trump in Texas. That shows you this, this dynamic he has in his head, this paradigm he has in his head of like, you know, uh, the left versus right, center versus Republican. Like, he's just thinking about politics the wrong way. It's the populism, stupid. It's the anti-corruption, stupid. Like, that's what it all comes down to. And then finally, he even has moved away now from Medicare for All. He just said, you have so much faith in the government, talking about Medicare for All. Well, first of all, Medicare for All is not a, quote, government takeover of healthcare. So he's feeding into right-wing propaganda there. It's just not the case. There's all different versions of single-payer healthcare. But, uh, you know, one that you see in a lot of places in the developed world is this idea of you basically just change the funder. <laughs> That's it. So you have all the same. It's public funding of private institutions. That's a very simple way to change the system. Still have all private providers, okay, but it's all a single payer, the government, where it's, it comes out of your taxes. So it's free at the point of service. But it's public funding. Tax money goes to private institutions. That works totally fine. Now, you can go full NHS style and do public funding of public institutions, um, but 
bottom line is you don't have to change. It's not like you get these like government bureaucrats that come in out of nowhere and they don't know what they're doing. And it's like, you know, all of a sudden the DMV is running healthcare. That's not the way it works. But he's making it seem like that's the way it works. And he's acting like you guys have so much faith in the government. Bill, you used to be in favor of Medicare for all. You supported Bernie Sanders in 2016. And now you're acting like that's not the answer when we know objectively, empirically, that is the answer because we have the studies, we have the data, we know it works throughout the developed world, we know it covers everybody at half the cost with better health outcomes. He's lost his damn mind, man. He has lost his mind. I guess that's what happens when you've been that removed from regular people for as long as he has. You hate to see it. All right, let's go to Joe Biden. He's going to, this is a, this is quite a scandal. And it was uh, both sad and hilarious. He's going to tell a story here. I'm sure if you guys are on Twitter, I'm sure you've seen this by now, but it is, it is something else. So Joe Biden is desperately trying to make up for answering a question in the debate about race in the worst possible way. And so he went around, and now he's telling this story about when he was a lifeguard as a young guy. And he had a run-in with a bad dude named Corn Pop. And I think what he's trying to do here is he's trying to make the case that, like, who, me, bro? Listen, all right, I understand the concerns of black people. Now, let me tell you this story from when I was younger where there's a happy ending to the story, bro. Because me and Corn Pop ended up getting along, and we ended up seeing eye to eye. And we became friends when there was a moment when it looked like we were going to be enemies, bro. That seems to me to be, like, the motivation behind telling this story. But as you're about to see, man, this is just so awkward and so unnecessary. This was the diving board area, and I was one of the guards, and there weren't a lot of the It was a three-meter board. If you fell off sideways, you landed on the, damp, uh, the darn cement over there. And Corn Pop was a bad dude, and he ran a bunch of bad boys. And I did, and, he, and back in those days, to show how things have changed, one of the things you had to use, if you used pomade in your hair, you had to wear a bathing cap. And so he was up on the board, wouldn't listen to me. I said, hey, Esther, you, off the board, or I'll come up and drag you off. Well, he came off, and he said, I'll meet you outside. My car, this was mostly, these were all public housing behind it. My car, there was a gate on here. I parked my car outside the gate. And I, he said, I'll be waiting for you. He was waiting for three guys in straight razors. Not a joke. There was a guy named Bill Wright, Mouse, the only white guy, and he did all the pools. He was the mechanic. And I said, what am I going to do? He said, come down here in the basement where mechanics, where, where, where all the pool builder is. You know, the chain, there used to be a chain that went across the deep end. And he cut off a six-foot length of chain. He folded up. He said, you walk out with that chain. And you walk to the car and say, you may cut me, man, but I'm going to wrap this chain around your head. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, if you don't, don't come back. And he was right. So I walked out with the chain. And I walked up to my car. And they had, they, those days, you used to remember the straight razor, you'd bang them on the curb, get them rusty, put them in a rain barrel, get them rusty. 
And I looked at him, but I was smart then. I said, first of all, I said, when I tell you to get off the board, you get off the board, and I'll kick you out again, but I shouldn't have called you, Esther Williams. I apologize for that. I apologize, but I didn't know that apology was going to work. He said, you apologize to me? I said, I apologize for that. Not for throwing you out, but I apologize for what I said. He said, okay, close the straight razor, and my heart began to beat again. <laughs> Dude, I don't know what you're doing, but you need to stop. How did anybody in his uh, staff think, like, oh, no, this is, this is fine. Go, let him tell the story about Corn Pop. This will go over well. Oh, my God, this is so embarrassing. There was also, I think it was the Washington Post had an article about this where they tell the story as well. Like, this is a concerted effort on their part. Like, I'll get the, get the Corn Pop story out there. This is going to be good. And so it's supposed to end happy, and him and Corn Pop get along, and... Okay, stop and reflect on this. We have a race right now where Joe Biden is out there telling, you know, stories about Corn Pop <laughs> and telling a story about record players, play the record players at night, make sure the kids hear words. This is what Joe Biden is doing. And Bernie Sanders is quite literally talking people down from committing suicide over medical debt at his town halls. You could not get a more stark contrast than you're getting right now. And then what's so funny is that in the fallout to this, uh, and I've witnessed it on Twitter too, it's amazing. You have, you know, Joe Biden's staff now is almost like, they're like kind of angry at the media because there are even people in the media who are normally not anti-Biden, even they're kind of like, What's the point of this? Like, what are you doing? This is kind of weird and embarrassing. This is so strange. But they're like, his staff is like indignant that people are reacting in the way that they're reacting. So they're trying to like fact check people who are expressing skepticism over the story or have a negative view of the story. And it's like, dude, the question here is not the accuracy of the story. I don't give a fuck if it's accurate or not. The issue here is how massively out of touch that you think this is something that should be told on the campaign trail and should be a centerpiece of, you know, or should be a news cycle. Like, why do you think the corn pop story is something that's going to resonate with people and is necessary to tell? Why is this a thing? I, why are we here even hearing the goddamn corn pop story? This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. And so, you know, people were responding to some of my tweets about this, and they were like, huh. Probably should have done some fact checking before you tweeted Kalinsky. And they had this like this old article that where there's a there's the obituary of a guy who had the nickname Corn Pop who died who's from the same area. As if like that's a gotcha. As if it's like aha, see, so the story's real. That's not. I'm not saying it's not real. That was never that was never the reaction that I was having. The reaction I was having was like holy shit, this is incredibly awkward and wildly unnecessary, and, like, this isn't helping, and why are you even telling this story? That was the reaction. The reaction wasn't like, oh, I'm sure he's factually wrong about this. I don't give a shit if it's true or false. It's just really weird that he's telling the story and acting like this is something that people need to hear as he's running for president of the United States. So that's what makes it extra funny, is that, like, his staff is like, no, fact check, see, Corn Pop's real. Here's the obituary, so you know the story's real. So everybody who has a negative reaction to it, just please, everybody shut the fuck up. Please, please. 
And it's like, no, dude, the reaction is everybody going, this is really awkward, not, hey, we think you're wrong about this. Oh, my God, what the fuck? Joe, this is embarrassing. Listen, guys, and I have to say it because it's true. This is what happens when you run for president and you don't believe in anything. And you don't have an, a vision to sell people. This is what you do. You reminisce about the time when you were a lifeguard and then you and Corn Pop almost got into a fight and then you ended up getting along. And isn't that such an uplifting story? And doesn't this mean that somehow I'll be great on race relations? What the fuck? Oh, my goodness, Joe. Holy moly. What are we looking at here? I'm sorry. He cannot be the nominee. Joe Biden, you know, I made a prediction before, um, before we even knew who the Democratic nominee was. I did a segment, and I warned everybody. I said, listen, if it's Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump is the favorite in the general election. Now, at the time, people thought that was crazy. People were like, what? <laughs> Donald Trump is going to win the presidency? Are you out of your mind? That was the reaction from a lot of people. But I was right, because you could see the dynamics unfolding. You could see that Trump was going to be a fake populist. Trump was going to act like he's anti-corruption. Trump was going to act like he's going to break up the establishment. And you could see that Hillary Clinton was very comfortable just running on a continuation of Obama's legacy, which is quite literally planting a flag and saying, I'm the status quo. So you could see the dynamic, and you could see it was more in Trump's favor. Well, with Joe Biden, listen, man, he is without question likely to lose to Trump because Trump, for all of his flaws, he's got vehement, vehement fans. He's got some Trump stands out there who are, you know, next level dedicated to him. Now, Trump also has a failing brain. There's no doubt about that. But he already has that giant base of support. Joe Biden's support is all, what I, again, what I call default support. People who don't really pay attention to politics, they hear, oh, Joe Biden's running. Oh, Joe, okay, he's a you know, VP at one point. Yeah, I know Joe. Sure, Joe. Why not? Joe, Joe. And he's experienced to go up against Trump. That's okay. Yeah, sure, Joe. These aren't Joe Biden stands. These aren't ride-or-die loyal people. He's not a movement candidate. And then mix both their failing brains together and the fact that Trump does have the diehard support and Biden doesn't have any message at all. What do you think is going to happen, bro? Don't let Biden be the nominee. I'm telling you, you're playing a dangerous, reckless game if you do that. It needs to be Bernie Sanders because that's the only way we guarantee victory. All right, guys, let me take a quick break. When we come back, we got a hell of a lot more. And we're going to first go to Tulsi Gabbard on Rave Dubin. You don't want to miss that. We'll talk about that and much more.
son of a bitch. All right, y'all. Shit. All right, we're back. Did I fuck up my monitor? I think I did, ladies and gentlemen. I think I did. Let me take a look at this. What would a secular talk show be without fucking uh, about 13 things up, having technical problems? Oh, okay. Actually, no, it's not bad. Well, I like that. That's good. I like it a lot. Here we go. So Tulsi Gabbard went on Rave Dubin's show. Um, and I have to tell everybody, I hesitated before doing this segment, particularly because I think Tulsi got screwed out of the debate stage. It's not that I think that that's the case. I know that she got screwed out of the debate stage. Um, why do I say that? Because she qualified, according to so many polls, but the DNC magically said, oh, no, those are not uh, DNC-approved polls, so sorry, you're not making the debate stage. This is at the same time that Cory Booker and Julian Castro did make the debate stage, and we know they don't have as strong a following as Tulsi Gabbard does. Even Tulsi Gabbard's biggest enemies have to admit that she certainly has a, a bigger base, bigger following than Cory Booker and Julian Castro. So I hesitated to do this story because I don't want to – at a time when I think she's getting screwed, I feel like it's not cool to criticize her. But then again, listen, man, I criticize my candidate. My candidate's America's dad, Bernard Sanders. I've criticized him on BDS. I did a story, uh, you know, what was it, two weeks ago or so, where I think his answer on, um, you know, legalizing or decriminalizing all drugs was wrong. You know, he's only on board with marijuana, and I don't think that goes anywhere near far enough. But anyway, I digress from that. Now, up front, is it a problem that Tulsi Gabbard went on Rave Dubin's show? Well, I say no, because, listen, you're running for political office, and you're trying to get votes, and what that means is you should go anywhere and everywhere to try to get those votes. Um, And on the show, there were good moments. Of course there were good moments. She made the case for gun reform. She made the case for ending endless wars. She made the the case for higher taxes on the rich and corporations. But there were also not-so-good moments. So here you're going to see some very absurd questions from Rave Dubin, and her answers were not great. It's interesting that you just said we love our country, because I, I briefly mentioned this in the green room, but I had Glenn back in here a couple of days ago, and he said... Uh, he didn't even know that you were coming on because this yeah. just happened in yeah. the last day or so. Yeah. But what he said was, um, I disagree with Tulsi on almost everything, but it's very obvious that she loves this country. And I think one of the things that's happening for, for sort of mainstream liberals, let's say not progressives, but sort of old school liberals, and then pretty much everyone on the right, is they're watching the candidates, the Democratic candidates, and there's this sense that they don't really love the country. 
country. Like, they really think it's so fundamentally broken or wrong or historically awful or some version of that, but that doesn't come across with you. I am unabashed in my love for our country. It's what's motivated, um, you know, these major decisions that I've made with what I want to do with my life. You know, that you were coming on, I retweeted one of your last tweets, which was, uh, you know, like a 30-second clip where you talked yeah. about freedom and liberty and things like that. I love all those words, but those words now have been really associated with the right and not with Democrats. Yeah. You find it odd that, I mean, right in there, there's a giant American flag and my control room and, <laughs> and all of those things, and I've got the Constitution and the Declaration yeah. of Independence in there. Like, do you find it odd that it seems that the Democrats aren't embracing those things? I, I'm, disheartened. From I'm disheartened by it um, because of all of those who have sacrificed for our freedom. So immigration, I think there's a general sense that the, the candidates, the Democrats are basically trying to outdo each other for open borders, something like that. Um, a, do you think that's a fair way to start the question? And B, where, where do you fair. sit on that? Uh, I, don't, I don't support open borders. Uh, without secure borders, we don't really have a country. And while some of the other Democratic candidates will say, well, open borders, that's a conservative argument, and that's not really what they advocated for. If you look at the practical implications of some of the things they're pushing for, it is essentially open borders. No, it's not. It's not even close. There's not a single Democratic candidate who supports open borders. I'd love to know what she would argue there in terms of the specifics, because if she's talking about, for example, oh, uh, you know, undocumented immigrants can get health care, that's not an open borders thing. What's the alternative? In every developed country, if you're, you know, some sort of undocumented immigrant and you get sick or you get hurt, you get help. That's the way it works. So that's not an open borders thing. That's a basic civilization thing. That's a basic human rights thing. So when you say healthcare is a human right, that means human right. Now, I will agree with her on one thing, which is I don't support open borders either. But I think that this argument of like, oh, the left is now all for open borders. I think the percentage of people on the left who support open borders is very small. And I know because I polled this in my own audience. Nobody can accuse a secular talk audience of not being left enough. We have, <laughs> it's a very strongly, very strongly left-wing um, audience. And the overwhelmingly popular position is let's have a border, but let's have open-minded, tolerant, humanitarian regulations that go along with that border. And I think that's where most people are, and certainly none of the Democratic candidates are, are arguing for open borders. So maybe she's referring to the Julian Castro thing there, but even Julian Castro, um, he made crystal clear when pressed on it, he says, no, no, I'm not, when we talk about decriminalizing it, it's still going to be a civil offense. So it's not like, you know, illegal border crossings are now legal. If instead of being a misdemeanor, which is what it is right now, it becomes a civil offense. Now, why? Why did he argue that? And this is a very important point, because he said, well, we all agree that the, the family separations are totally fucked up, and we want to stop that. So this would prevent the breakup of the families. I don't know how anybody could really disagree with what he's saying when he lays it out in detail. That's a very, very 
common sense position. I mean, even Donald Trump has been forced to the position where he has to say that he thinks the family separations are cruel. So when you say let's make it, you know, let's change it from a misdemeanor to um, a civil offense to stop the breakup of families, that's a perfectly reasonable position. And to caricature that as open borders, I think, is fundamentally untrue. If anything, the reasonable criticism of the Democrats is from the left on this issue. Because I don't know if you guys remember this, but there were Democrats who, it, during the, you know, the negotiations with Republicans, literally said, okay, we'll give Trump his wall if, if he gets protections for dreamers. And the deal fell through. So if anything, the criticism of the Democrats is they're still too far to the right on the issue of the border. Now, again, this is coming from somebody who I don't, do not believe in open borders because I am a strong proponent of a welfare state. And in order to have a welfare state, you need to have borders. You can't have a welfare state and no borders. I mean, that's just a matter of common sense. But, uh, you know, this is not what the Democrats are arguing for. They're not arguing for open borders, not a single Democratic candidate for open borders. So when you feed into that argument, you are feeding into a right-wing talking point, and that's totally not cool. Um, now, the other thing is when Rave Dubin says, like, these words like freedom and liberty are now more associated with the right. Tulsi, you know I like you, Tulsi, and I do. I do like her. But that's, you got to push back on that framing because that's total nonsense. <laughs> you couldn't have thrown a softball down the center of the plate any easier than that. He even said to you, uh, no, uh, actually it was on the open borders one where he said, do you agree with that framing? You should have said no, but you didn't. But then on, on this one, he says, Republicans believe in freedom and liberty and Democrats don't. Trump just launched a crackdown, to be fair to Tulsi, this interview may have been before this announcement, and to be fair to Rave Dubin, but um, Trump just launched a crackdown on flavored e-cigarettes because six people maybe died because of them. Okay, that would be the opposite of freedom, but it's not only that. When it comes to legalizing marijuana, which party has more people advocating for that position of legalizing marijuana? Answer, the Democratic Party. I have many problems with the Democrats, but the idea that somehow the Republicans support freedom more than the Democrats are you kidding me? The Democratic Party, or excuse me, the Republican Party is even more hawkish than the Democratic Party. And all we do is over illegally overthrow governments that didn't attack us and try to put in puppet dictators. That would be the opposite of freedom. That would be the opposite of freedom. Or, you know, hey, Dave, he's a, he's a gay man, and he likes to remind us of that every day and a half. Who was it that was fighting for your right to marry? I think that's a freedom issue. You should have the right to marry whoever you want to marry. It's pretty basic, right? Who was fighting for that? Oh, that's right. The Republican Party was blocking it every step of the way. So this idea, oh my God. Like what, do you fall for the buzzwords that these idiot politicians use in speeches instantly? Is that what you do? You don't look at the policy. You just look at some jackass giving a speech and he's like, I believe in freedom and liberty. And, and Rave Dubin is like, yeah, yes, yes. Republicans believe in freedom and liberty, and Democrats don't. It's really a shame. I can't believe Tulsi didn't push back on that. I mean, that's just, that's like lazy propaganda, not even trying. Um, and then, what was the last one? Oh, the, people get the sense that uh, Democrats don't love the country, but you do. And she's like, of course I love this country. We know, we know you love the country. You have to push back on that and say, no. Even though I have giant disagreements with other people who are in the party, 
I think they love the country. Guys, I've done segments, and you've seen them, where I talk about how even the Republicans, who I might disagree with on everything, I don't think they don't love the country. I just think they have a different conception of what a positive direction for the country is. I mean, I'm willing to be that charitable, even to people who I disagree with on everything, where I say, I'm not saying you don't love the country. Of course, I think you love the country. We just have different ideologies and different things that we think are positive. But Ray Dubin set it up like well, everybody agrees, like the Democrats don't love the country. And Tulsi went along with it. Come on, Tulsi. Oh, my God. I'm a huge defender of Tulsi, as you guys know. You go do the breakdown of all my segments. It's 85% or 90% positive, 10% or 15% negative. But you got to push back on that nonsense framing. And for the record, again, I'll repeat it. I have no problem with her going on Rave Dubin's show. None whatsoever. I think when you're running for office, you want to try to get as many votes as possible, and you're going to go in as many forums as possible. That's wonderful. But when you do it, if he sets up some nonsense framings and dumb questions, take them on, man. Take them on. I mean, that was really bad. I think the thing that bugs me so much is how, like, extra absurd these questions are and how easy it is to just, like, quickly brush them aside. Like, no, I don't think it's only the right that believes in, that claims to believe in freedom and liberty. No, I think that all the candidates love the country, you know. No, I don't think my colleagues are in favor of open borders. <sighs> open borders, Jesus Christ. All right, well, there you have it. Um, that was uh, quite upsetting. And on this show, what we try to do is always tell you what I, I think and uh, pull no punches even when it's candidates who I generally like. Okay, next. This one will make you laugh. Oh, never mind. We got to go to the vaping one because they, whatchamacallits, are not in order. The graphics. So there's a new boogeyman that we're all supposed to be afraid of now. Trump says the FDA to ban flavored e-cigarettes. Now, it's not just Trump, actually. It's also some Democrats getting in on the fun here. Governor Andrew Cuomo announced an emergency ban on all flavors of e-cigarettes, excluding tobacco and menthol. Vaping is dangerous, period. All right, so let me talk about the, you know, myriad ways this doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, menthol, menthol's a flavor. It's like a minty flavor. So... When they say, we're banning flavored e-cigarettes because they're dangerous. Well, menthol is a flavor. So it's like, the it's, point is, I don't agree with the ban of it, but they're not even consistent in their stupidity. <laughs> it's not even like, okay, no, we mean it. All the flavors, gone. It's just like, it's so arbitrary. So they're getting rid of all the flavors. Now, the argument they use is, what, what about the children? Oh, the children. 
okay, but there are rules and there are laws that apply here. You have to be, I think, 18 years or older to vape. So how about you just enforce that? There's an idea. You know, it's not like, imagine this argument when it comes to alcohol. The children! Ah, the children! They're kids who get into their parents' mini bar, and then they drink, and then they have to go to the hospital. It's not good. Some of them have even died. But the re- reaction to that from society is very simply, yeah, but we're adults and we like alcohol, so how about you fuck off? <laughs> the argument is, like, just enforce the age limit. That's it. But for this, all of a sudden, there's a moral panic. Why? And I'm not joking about this. There were articles that came out recently, and there's been a grand total of, allegedly, six deaths from vaping. Six. Now, the details are murky, and what exactly is it that led to the death, and is it all kinds of uh, vapes that are the problem? Or e-cigarettes, I should say. Is it all kinds of e-cigarettes that are the problem? Or is it only a specific kind? What's the exact reason that led to it? What was the disease that developed that then led to the death? There are all these questions. We're not waiting for answers. They're just going, ah, yeah, ban it. Just ban it. That's good. We just want, just ban it. That's the way to go. Let's just ban it. Six people dead. Um, so, just so everybody knows, <laughs> and this is an amazing fact, 1,300 people die every single day from regular cigarettes. Those are legal. They're legal. That's a total of 480,000 deaths per year. There's been six total for vaping. Now, there's a bigger reason why I'm against this. And granted, it's anecdotal, and it's a subjective experience, but nonetheless, I think it's valid. Vaping helped me quit cigarettes. I smoked Newport Lights for at least five years, maybe more. And uh, it was vaping that played a big role in getting me off of those because here's the way I describe it. You know, it takes off the edge of being without cigarettes just enough, just enough for you to get by. So you get a, you know, an e-cigarette that has a little bit of nicotine in it. And by the way, the nicotine is not the thing that's unhealthy for you, just so everybody knows. Um, and for me... It was a blue e-cigarette. It was a menthol one. Now, that would still be legal, technically. Um, but I'm sure there are people who, you know, they're trying to get off cigarettes, and they use a specific fruity flavor one. But now they can't do that. So for me, it was, it, it took away, I don't know, maybe maybe 60% of the urge to smoke, you know, uh, it got rid of just by taking some puffs on an on a e-cigarette. And that was just enough to get me to buy where I had the willpower. I was like, I don't need a cigarette. I'm good. I just took a couple of puffs of my e-cigarette. So what I don't like about these kinds of moral panics is they're illogical. Like they don't, they don't take into account the whole picture. They don't like look for counterpoints to what they're trying to do here. That's definitely a dynamic where people have quit cigarettes because of e-cigarettes, even the flavored ones. Now, they would argue, but also in the opposite direction it works, which is true. There's some kids who start by vaping, and then they get to a point where they will graduate to actual cigarettes. And so it works in the other direction, too. It's a gateway out like it's a gateway in. But then the question becomes, it's an empirical question as to, well, which one outweighs the other? 
are there more people that quit cigarettes because of it, or are there more people that get into cigarettes because of it? But either way, what my point would be in this conversation is it is objectively not as dangerous as about a thousand other things that are perfectly legal. So to single it out makes no sense. And also, you guys know, when it comes to social issues, I lean very heavily in a libertarian direction, in a live-and-let-live direction. And so what that means is, just to be clear, I don't think there, you know, you can't do regulation. I believe in regulation, but I, I'm not generally a fan of bans. You know, I think maybe you could do some studies to figure out, hey, look further into the deaths that were linked to vaping, figure out the details, try to figure out what exactly was it that led to the problem. Apparently people had a lung disease that developed, but how? How did it happen? Was it a certain ingredient? What, what was going on? And then if you find out, okay, then regulate the e-cigarettes accordingly, where you say we're going to get rid of this thing, which was the catalyst for the vaping disease, whatever ingredient it was. Just, and by the way, I'm in favor of this exact same approach with cigarettes. If you wanted to do a study, find out, oh, hey, man, listen, here are the carcinogens. We're going to make you make cigarettes without these particular carcinogens. Now we've regulated the marketplace, but cigarettes are still legal. That's the best of both worlds, in my opinion. My opinion is try to give people as much freedom as humanly possible while also having basic safety regulations. That's my take on it. Now, maybe you guys disagree. Maybe you lean more heavily in the freedom direction. Maybe you lean more heavily in the regulation direction, and you don't think this is a crazy idea. But I just find it so obnoxious that it's like certain hobbies and certain vices are singled out, and other people get to have their fucking vices. You know, so, I don't know, you fill in the blank, whatever it might be. Somebody can go and buy a bunch of whiskey at 7 a.m. and drink themselves to death, and that's perfectly legal. Chris Christie can go eat four meals at McDonald's, and that's perfectly fine, even though he's putting himself in an early grave. But something that killed maybe, maybe not six people, a flavored vape, that's what you come and take away from people? I'm sorry, man, I just think that's super fucked up. Because, I mean, let's be honest, there are people out there working some shitty job, unhappy, don't want to be at it, and then maybe the brightest spot in their day is when they get to fucking hit their flavored vape pen. I know that sounds goofy and silly, but it could be the case. There are plenty of people like that out there. So why single them out? It's just so obnoxious. And then also, I mean, the elephant in the room here is what? The gun conversation. Six people killed by, by vape, maybe. We don't even know if it was flavored that killed those people, by the way. But we have 32,000 gun deaths every year. 32,000. 10,000 homicides every year. And they're like, well, we have the Second Amendment. Yeah, that's true. You have the Second Amendment. But that doesn't mean you can't do regulation of the gun. That doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, like, can you ban high-capacity magazines? Can you do universal background checks? Yes. Can you have some sort of licensing system? Yes. You can do all that stuff, but they don't. So it's not, here's the point, guys, and this gets under my skin more than anything else. It's not, they're not thinking about it. They're not, like, being logically coherent. It's just, it's the faux moral panic of the day, so they're all systems go on that. You know, and I know, again, e-cigarettes helped me, so I'm biased in the direction of e-cigarettes, but this is also like when the FDA randomly one day was like, oh, Kratom, Kratom, we're going to go after Kratom. Well, I use Kratom, I like Kratom, and it's a wonderful, you know, uh, supplement. But, and there are plenty of people, this isn't me, but there are plenty of people who use Kratom 
because they uh, were addicted to pain pills, and then it helps them get off of them, and it keeps them sober. And so it's like a medicine as well as something that can be recreationally used. But the FDA, when it was like, uh, uh, ban it, we don't like it. What? And you couldn't help but get the, the, you know, the thought that, hey, maybe this is because this is cutting into the profits of the pharmaceutical industry, for example. Hey, maybe the, they're cracking down on the flavored vape here because it's cutting into the profits of the, you know, the cigarette companies. I mean, it could be that that's the reason why. And let's face it, there's been a hell of a lot more lobbying of, of the government by the cigarette industry than by the e-cigarette industry. There has been lobbying, by the way. Uh, it's been, I think, a little under $2 million worth of lobbying from the e-cigarette industry. But there's no doubt that over the years, the cigarette industry has lobbied way more. So it's one of those things where it's like, are you just saying you're getting in the way of my profits, so we're going to try to ban you? I don't know, but whatever it is, I fucking hate it, and it really annoys the shit out of me. And I'm so tired of, you know what I want the government to do? I want the government to take care of the basics for me. That's what I want. I want the government to set reasonable parameters in a society. So I want the government to say, hey, man, you're never going to go bankrupt for medical bills. We're not going to let that happen. Hey, man, look at this wonderfully paved road that we have in front of your house. Isn't that great? Isn't that lovely? You can get places because your tax money paid for this. Hey, man, we got cops. We got the fire department. Um, we don't think student debt should be a thing. We're going to have free college. These are, the thi- I want, these are the things I want the government to do. I do not want the government to be a, you know, a strict nanny where they're like, I don't think you should have that. Oh, I don't think you should have that either. Now, again, you could do safety regulation, totally fine with that. But bans? Why? 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 We don't like that thing, so we're going to stop it. Okay, then don't have it. You don't like flavored e-cigarettes? Fine. Fuck off. Don't have it. But what if somebody does? We don't like that. We're going to ban it. We don't like it. We're against it. So many other things that they could be doing, that they should be doing, that would save more lives, that would be more reasonable. Guys, 30 to 45,000 people die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. So let me rephrase that. Because we don't have Medicare for all, 30 to 45,000 people die every year. Are there, is, is the, you know, is the governor of New York going, we, executive order, we're going to set up a state Medicare for all system now. Is Donald Trump and the FDA, oh, we are, they, death, death, so many deaths, we got to get a Medicare for all system. No. It's arbitrary. It's silly. It's dumb. It doesn't make sense. And it's really pathetic. Okay, next. Bet on my stork. That's the sound of some big Celta Beach. That's all that is. So I did a Twitter poll, and I asked all of you lovely people what you think of Beto's AR-15 mandatory buyback, and um, the results are pretty interesting. Now, I do think it's fair to call this confiscation, because if it's a mandatory buyback, it's mandatory. It becomes illegal to own an AR-15. So it's not just, and it's a very important distinction. It's not just, 
hey, from here on out, they cannot sell AR-15s. The idea is, from here on out, you know, they can't sell AR-15s. And also, we're going to retroactively try to take away all the ones that are out there right now. So it's definitely further than anybody's gone in the national uh, debate when it comes to gun reform. And Beto kind of proudly planted that flag and said, what do you say? Hell yes, we're going to take your gun or something like that. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15. I forget his exact phrasing, but it was something like that. Um, so anyway, here's the results of the poll I put out there. I said, Beto's mandatory buyback. And then I said, I think it's fair to call a confiscation of AR-15s. I'm for it, 34%. I'm against it, 41%. Eh, I'm not sure, 25%. But that's really interesting because, again, definitely at least 80% of my followers are on the left. And so for, for the results to be like this, when there's a bias in a left-wing direction, I think says something. And 34% being for it, that's actually very low. Now, I know there were three options, but still, I'm against it was the biggest option by itself. But also when you add together, I'm against it and I'm not sure, which still fundamentally is like, no, don't do it. Because if you're not sure, you're not going to do it when you're not sure. You're going to be like, I don't know. So that would be, what's 41 plus 25? Let's do math. I'm not very good at this. 41, 51, 61. So that's 20. So 66. So 66% are basically on the side of... Mm, that's a lot. That's a lot, man. Only 34% are for it. So, you know, when, I, when we discussed this, my... My general take was I lean in the direction of no, but overall I'm still just not sure what I think about it. Uh, what I do favor very strongly is a universal background check system, for sure, a ban on high-capacity magazines, rigidly enforced, by the way, for sure, um, and I even favor a licensing system. Now, um, I think that some sort of a licensing system would probably uh, get – a challenge in through the court system and I actually think it's an open question as to whether or not like a real licensing system would be uh, considered constitutional or not but I do favor a licensing system because and you know it's a really reasonable point there's a, a really important process you have to go through before you could legally drive a car so uh, you know people say that's a weapon a car could be a weapon so when you have actual, like, legit weapons <laughs> that are only weapons, there's no licensing process. It does seem uh, a little bit archaic and primitive. So that's what I support. And there's probably some, other, uh, some others that are not popping in my head right now. Um, am I in favor of a ban on automatic uh, or, uh, or assault weapons, as they call them? But when you talk to gun diehards, they're like assault weapons. That's not really a thing. Um, I'm open to that. I kind of lean in the direction of yes on that as well. However, I think it should be done from here on out. Like you can't sell them anymore. I think, I just think the way it would work to do a mandatory buyback. And by the way, I'm fine with a voluntary buyback. That I'm totally fine with, but a mandatory buyback, like the dynamics of it just seem wrong in that it's like, okay, it is like gun confiscation. And it does kind of strike me as, I don't want to say anti-American because that's too strong, but it is 
not something I think would go smoothly, and I would understand why it wouldn't go smoothly. And it's a little bit too much, in my opinion. But then the counter-argument to what I'm saying is, like, no, if you think in principle that these kinds of weapons of war are wrong, then of course the reasonable position is get rid of the weapons of war. And that would include the ones that are already out there. And another good point is probably that, you know, it would definitely tick down the number of gun deaths. Then again, every reform that I'm in favor of, I think, would massively tick down the number of gun deaths. For sure. For sure. Um, but would Beto's idea perhaps reduce the number of gun deaths further? Yeah. I mean, if that's your ultimate goal, then yes. But again, that's not the only thing to consider when discussing policy. And it gets to the conversation that we actually just had about the fucking um, you know, e-cigarettes and, and vaping and how they ban flavored vaping. Six people allegedly had, had died from that. And they're like, just ban it, gone. But again, it's not like, I don't think that's the only lens you view it through is what about the deaths? There are other factors that, that come into play. Now, should the deaths be a big part of it? Yes. But is it the only part of it? No. Um, but I will give Beto credit on this. At least he moved the Overton window in a direction that's, in my opinion, more reasonable. Now, I don't really agree with him on what he's calling for, but it does shift the debate and make it so that now the other reforms appear as reasonable as they really are. <laughs> like, again, universal background check polls over 90%. Over 90. Even assault weapons ban is well over 50. So when he says what he said, well, now it's easy to be like, well, he's the bad guy, but there's a lot of reasonable people out there who are just like, hey, man, what, here's, well, here's what we can do, universal background checks, high-capacity magazine ban, so on and so forth. So I don't know. And, and the other question is, did he, did he do this because he really believes in it, or did he do it because his campaign is flailing and he's at 1% and he needed to make a name, and so he had to plant a flag and try to outflank everybody on stage on an issue, and this is the issue he settled on? And I'm sorry, but it's, maybe it's my skeptical nature here when it comes to Beto because we've been burned by him in the past, but I, I lean in the direction of he doesn't really – like, this isn't really something he's like, hell yeah, this is my position. It is more of like a political calculation on his part where this is a strategy. He's doing it more as a strategy than a really deep-seated, deep, deeply held belief. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he actually does. This is an issue where he, he really does take this position and he's really passionate about it. I don't know. Um, but either way, I thought it was fascinating what your responses were. Um, 34% for it. 41% against it, 25% not sure. Okay, next. to the Trump one. All right. It turns out Wall Street absolutely despises um, Elizabeth Warren. And you're about to see a clip of that. So here's an interesting clip that went viral. This is from about a week ago. A week ago. CNBC says that there are executives 
at the banks that are terrified of an Elizabeth Warren presidency. Watch. How is it possible that this company cannot find a CEO? I mean, are they worried about Elizabeth Warren attacking the people? Of course they are. Of course they are. And of course that person is. Why wouldn't they be? I, I, I don't know. If she becomes president, what do you think is going to happen to the bank? Well, it's not a... You think Elizabeth Warren pushes banks into a well, They're already down 20% from the highs, but... Yeah, I just think that you know, there were these uh, hearings in the 30s uh, where they brought rich people in front of Congress and just kind of trashed them. About 20 years later, we had the least uh, discrepancy in income in the 50s and 60s, right? I don't know what's going to happen. Look, I've got to tell you, when you get off the desk and you talk to executives, they're more fearful of her winning. I mean, I've never heard anybody say, look, I, uh, she's got to be stopped. She's got to be stopped. I don't know. It's, she's very, uh, she keeps going up in the polls. Uh, she's raised a ton of money. So she's going to win Iowa, I believe. Uh, she's a very compelling figure on the stump. By the way, uh, I hear it too, and it's another reason why companies are being implored to do things now. If you want to get something done, you really think M&A or anything, think about doing it soon, because come early to mid-2020, if Elizabeth Warren's rolling along, everybody's going to be like, that's it. So you hear it too. Oh, yeah. So she responded to this, and she tweeted, I'm Elizabeth Warren, and I approve this message. Because it became a pretty big story that, like, oh, shit, the big banks are scared of her becoming president. Now, what's interesting is apparently they aren't when it comes to Bernie. However, you have to understand that the establishment is so massively out of touch that I wouldn't doubt that even to this day they think, like, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, no chance, no chance at all. And um, that's obviously not true. And Bernie is the favorite. Um, now, there's other people out there saying, no, 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 this is a head fake. You know, it's like the last-ditch effort of the establishment, and they're, like, doing some reverse psychology stuff where it's like, you know, they're saying, oh, no, not Elizabeth Warren, when really they would be comfortable with her as the alternative to Bernie. Now, just to be clear, it's not an open question as to who's tougher on the banks. The answer is Bernie Sanders. He's significantly tougher on the banks. However, having said that, Elizabeth Warren is relatively tough on the banks, too. You know, you guys know that what I've been clear about on this show is her strengths and her weaknesses. And her strength, she's really strong in some areas and really weak in some areas. And, you know, the area where she's the most weak is foreign policy. I mean, she's just... She's just a standard, you know, centrist Democrat when it comes to foreign policy, and that's really, really not good. Um, but it's not it's, – it's real when I say that her strength is Wall Street and uh, her strength is tax policy and her strength is trade policy. And do I think that, you know, people on Wall Street would legit be shook of an Elizabeth Warren presidency? Yes, I do. Again, Bernie has a better chance of winning – and Bernie is tougher on Wall Street and the banks, but I actually do think that they're so out of touch that they think, like, he's still got no chance. <laughs> Whereas apparently they think Elizabeth Warren does have a chance. So 
I mean, yeah, this is uh, this is something that is going to make her look good in the eyes of a lot of people for understandable reasons. However, what I would say to them is just know, again, she's not the total package, man, and that's what's so frustrating. Nothing gets me more annoyed than people who sincerely believe that, like, her and Bernie are equal or even that, like, she might be further left than Bernie, which is beyond ridiculous, not even close to an argument for that position. But she's not... She's not him. He's the total package. She is not the total package. She has a number of blind spots that we've talked about on this show. She went on TYT and told Jake Uger, I'm not taking uh, money from uh, big donors anymore. And then she immediately said, oh, but in the general, I, I don't do unilateral disarmament and I'll take money, uh, big money from donors. You can't make that argument because what you're saying is, hey, money is a corrupt influence on politicians, and I refuse to be corrupted in the primary, but in the general, I'm, all, all down, I'm totally down to be corrupted. I'm all game for that. No, it's the problem. It's a matter of principle. The problem is with the dynamic of money in politics and politicians taking big donor money. That dynamic doesn't magically disappear in the general. That is not something you'd ever hear Bernard Sanders say, ever. So... They really should be scared more of a Bernie Sanders presidency and then to a lesser extent of an Elizabeth Warren presidency. But uh, apparently they are scared of an Elizabeth Warren presidency. And no, I, I don't buy the theory that it's like, you know, they're doing some sort of a head fake or they're playing three-dimensional chess and they're like, oh, no, not her, when they would actually be totally fine with her. Because, again, her record has been pretty strong on Wall Street. And even though her, she has a lot of blind spots, this is not one of them. It's not. So I don't doubt that they're actually a little bit shook about that, but they should be more scared of uh, one Bernard Sanders. That's for damn sure. Okay, next. All right, let's talk about how out of touch some Democratic representatives are. If I can find the video. So there's a Texas representative by the name of uh, Vincente Gonzalez, and he's so illogical and out of touch that he originally endorsed Julian Castro, and then he waited until Biden's brain collapsed inward on national TV and started dripping out of his ears to change his endorsement from Castro to Biden. Watch this. Do you stand by your endorsement of Secretary Castro? Well, I think at this point in time, we need to narrow the field and unite as Democrats to defeat Trump uh, in, in November 2020. And uh, that's why I believe I'm, I'm moving my uh, support to, to uh, Vice President Joe Biden. I think he's uh, sure, certainly showed the statesmanship throughout every single debate. He's been the steady ship. Uh, he has eight years' experience in the White House already. He had a distinguished career in the Senate. 
Um, he has a story that resonates with the American people, and I clearly believe that he is the candidate that can get us past the finish line. And uh, clearly, Secretary Castro is a qualified candidate. We have an amazing array of qualified candidates, but I think it's time to narrow the field and unite and uh, get ready to defeat Trump in 2020. This is not a time to create fractures. We have many, many uh, candidates, all of them very qualified and very good, but we need to come to terms with the reality if you're pulling into low single digits and you're not raising resources, uh, I mean, it's clearly a recipe for disaster, and, and uh, I think we need to be uh, cognizant of that as a, as a Democratic Party wanting to defeat Trump. This is, is going to be a historical election. Uh, this is not a time for infighting, and, and I think uh, it's the, the right move forward for all Democrats in the country you and say, the American people in general. You say this is not a time for infighting, but I'm also hearing that your switching from the Castro camp to now endorsing Vice President Biden is not because of that exchange at, at the debate, even though a lot of Biden people uh, criticized no. Secretary Castro very strongly saying that he was disrespectful. That's not the reason, though. No, uh, not at all. Um, I, you know, everybody has their own style on the debate stage. I think the delivery could have, as I said, could have been different. Uh, but uh, for the most part, I think they're all good, qualified Democrats that care for this country, that uh, need to come together and, and uh, figure out who our guy is that can take us across the finish line. And at this point, after three debates and, and you know, a year of campaigning almost, I think it's pretty clear that the person who showed the statementship that can, that can take us, uh, past the finish line is the steady ship of Joe Biden. The steady ship of Joe Biden. This seems more like an SNL skit than real life. Dude, what did they give you? There's a decent chance that they actually, like, old school bribed this dude. The steady ship of Joe Biden. Imagine endorsing somebody for president and at no point in your endorsement bringing up policy. Must be nice to be that comfortable. <laughs> Go talk to any Bernie supporter, anyone. I guarantee you 100% of them will bring up policy. It might not be the same policy, but they'll bring up policy without question. He just endorsed Biden, didn't mention a single policy, and called him the steady ship. Dude, he rambled about record players at the last debate. He was asked a question about slavery and race and his old, a direct quote that he said back in the day on that issue. And then he started rambling about, you got to do the right thing. You got to make sure the record player is on at night. Make sure the kids hear words. What? Every debate, he's had really awkward, cringeworthy moments. In a back and forth with Bernie he, uh, on Medicare for All, he defaulted to, when he was cornered and just checkmated, he was like, this is America. And he loves to say that all the time. The other thing he says all the time is, fact of the matter is, come on, man. Fact of the matter is, come on, man. <laughs> those are the two things he says those all the time. Um, so... This guy says, Representative Gonzalez says, we, quote, have to unite, and he says, this is not a time for infighting. Dude, this is a primary election. It, of course, is the time for infighting. That's the whole reason for a primary. 
figure out who the people like the best, and then pick that person, and that'll be our candidate. You have to make distinctions and differentiate between the candidates. You have to do that. Oh, God, they're so... He's so out of touch. Not the time for infighting, and you have to unite. Um, And then finally he says, well, he's the candidate that can win. That's why I'm going for Biden. I said this earlier, but it, it really is the case that Biden is the weakest candidate to go up against Trump. I really believe that now. He's way weaker than anybody thought previously. I previously thought he was much stronger. Why? Because his record was, in one-on-one debates with Republicans, he obliterated Sarah Palin, he obliterated Paul Ryan. But you got to remember, guys, this is, you know, 2008 Joe Biden and 2012 Joe Biden. Today we're talking about 2019 Joe Biden. He's a different person. He has definitely changed. He's incoherent. He just babbles and says nothing now. And Donald Trump, even though Trump has some serious psychological deterioration as well, the difference is Donald Trump already has Trump stands. He already has people who are ride or die with him to the max. Whereas Biden, he's got the default support, the lazy support, people who go, you know, I don't follow politics too closely, but I heard Biden's running and sure, I'm with Biden. He doesn't have that kind of, he's not a movement candidate. He doesn't have the diehard support. So you got two people with failing brains. One of them has massive grassroots support. The other one is, has got tepid supporters. Guys, this is a perfect storm. This will be Hillary 2016 all over again. If it's Trump versus Biden, Trump is the favorite. Okay? I said the same thing about Hillary versus Trump, and I was right. I'm warning you right now. And honestly... I, I sincerely believe Julian Castro would have a better chance of beating Trump than Biden does. I mean that. You know, I made fun of Julian Castro ruthlessly, ruthlessly, for um, a lot of his out-of-touch, you know, silly ads when he launched and he was too on script. But since then, he's been very, like, kind of miserable on the campaign trail, but he sells better when he's miserable, that's for sure. He actually is a pretty solid debater when he drops his bullshit facade act and he just is a normal person. So anyway, there you have it. Imagine after watching Biden talk about record players and talk about corn pop and all that stuff, now choosing now to endorse him. When previously you endorsed somebody else, it's beyond embarrassing. It's time for my favorite story of the day. You're going to love this, guys. This might be my favorite story of the month. So the Daily Beast dropped a wild story on us about something that Trump admits privately. This is such an I told you so moment here. Take a look. As he campaigns for re-election, Donald Trump and his team have made trashing the socialists or communists in the 2020 Democratic presidential field 
a cornerstone of their messaging. In private, however, the president often strikes a different, more nuanced tone, one driven by a concern that socialism, at least as defined by the Democrats, may actually sell politically. This year, Trump has reportedly told friends and donors that running against socialism in a general election may not be so easy because of its populist draw. According to four Republicans and sources close to Trump who heard him say this over the past several months, according to a person who was in the room, Trump told donors at a recent private event that though a lot of people think it'll be easy to beat in 2020, the truth is it might not be so easy. The president, according to the source, said that, quote, you can have someone who loves Trump, but many people love free stuff, too. He added that if candidates tell Americans, especially young voters, that they're going to cancel their debt, that's a tough one to run against. Donald Trump does two things well. One of them is marketing. The other one is reading a room. Those are the only two things that Donald Trump does well. Marketing, you know, Trump's great, Trump, 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 Trump. Here's my name on a building. Here's my name over here. I'm the boss man, yada, yada. You guys know, know all that. He's an abysmal failure in business. He's terrible politically, but he knows how to market. And he knows how to read a room, which is why when he was given those rallies on the campaign trail, no other Republican candidate could come close to the enthusiasm that he was getting. Hillary couldn't come close to the enthusiasm that Trump was getting at his rallies because he knows how to read a room and he knows how to feed off that energy and steer it the way, the way that they want to go. Now, he's also a buffoon and he makes no sense and he contradicts himself. All that stuff is true, but he knows how to read a room. So something that I pointed out nonstop in 2016 that, of course, virtually all the mainstream pundits missed is that Donald Trump was not running as a standard traditional Republican. He was not running like Mitt Romney. He was not running like John McCain. He was saying stuff like, on trade, for example, I'm going to keep your jobs here. It's going to be tremendous. We're going to rebuild this country. We're going to stop the wars. We're going to rebuild this country because why are we wasting all the money overseas? He even said, I think it was a 60 Minutes interview, where he spoke about uh, where everybody's going to have health care. And the host pushed back. I was like, well, who's going to pay for it? He said, the government's going to pay for it. I remember going, oh, my goodness. See, what he has that a lot of the other Republicans don't have is the instincts, the, the quick instincts that you need to be successful as a politician. Whereas guys like Mitt Romney, he's too ideological and that he actually believes in deregulation and trickle-down economics and free trade and outsourcing jobs and whatnot. So he just tells you the wrong thing. Where Trump's like, I know that's not going to sell. I know it's not going to sell if I'm like, yeah, NAFTA was great. So what does he do? He runs in the opposite direction. And it works. So what Trump knows, and we could have guessed that he knew this, but now he's admitting it behind the scenes. What this is, very clearly is, Trump saying, I'm scared of Bernie. That's what he's saying. Because the specific point is, um, the truth is it might not be so easy. You can have someone who loves Trump but many people love free stuff. He added that if candidates tell Americans, especially young Americans, that they're going to cancel their debt, that's a tough one to run against. Hmm, who's proposed those plans? Hmm. Who's proposed not only canceling student loan debt, but also canceling medical debt? 
and canceling all of it? Answer, America's dad, Bernard Sanders. He's the only candidate who's running on that full debt cancellation of medical debt and student loan debt. By the way, two kinds of debt that literally shouldn't exist, and Bernard Sanders knows this, and he's running on it. And this is the exact thing that's scaring Trump. By the way, if I'm Bernie Sanders, I frame this and hang it over my bed and wake up every morning and look at it. Because Trump just told you the argument he's least capable to respond to. He just told you. He laid it out for you in no uncertain terms. So if I'm Bernie Sanders, I start incorporating now during my rallies, my stump speeches. I start saying now. I add um, student loan debt cancellation and medical debt cancellation. That hops the line. That goes right up there along with Medicare for all. Because that's, you know, Bernie brings that up a lot. He brings up Medicare for all and income inequality probably the most. Those are the two he brings up the most. So, but now these should be right up there and tied. Because Trump has no response to them. He doesn't have a response to them. Because he knows, oh my God, that's really good, bro. That's really good and that's going to get a lot of votes, dog. So if I'm Bernie, if I'm his campaign, I make a point in every speech to bring this up. I make a point where when you're on the debate stage with Trump, this is one of the go-to points you make. Whatever he brings up, and you apply pressure to him. You put it on him. You say, what this campaign is running on is eliminating student loan debt and eliminating medical debt, two things that shouldn't exist in a civilized country. Donald, why are you not for eliminating medical debt and eliminating student loan debt? Explain to the good people of this country why they should go bankrupt because they have a medical bill, why they should not be able to afford a new place to live or a new car because of student loan debt. He's telling you, man. He's telling you. This is just verification of what we knew all along. And you got to understand, guys, to you this is obvious. To you, this is obvious. This is not even close to obvious to mainstream media. If anything, they think the opposite is the case, and they're dead set in that belief. So in other words, what do they think? Well, in order to beat Donald Trump, we need to have a serious candidate like Joe Biden who talks about corn pop and record players, and we need to have a serious candidate who's very reasonable and moderate and centrist like Amy Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar would definitely beat Donald Trump because she's so reasonable and soft-spoken and she has very intelligent, centrist policies. Donald Trump would obliterate. Biden is the weakest candidate by far. But probably the second weakest candidate is a tie between Delaney and, uh, and Klobuchar. So what, the people who the media think, those are the ones, yeah, those are the ones that are the weakest. And Trump is admitting it behind the closed doors. He's like, I don't know, man, can I run against just eliminating student loan debt and stuff? That's a tough one, because that's sell. People could love Trump, but they love free stuff. And he's not even using free stuff with the, in the derisive way here, because that's usually the Republicans when they're in public. It's like, hey, I want to give everybody free stuff. I want to give everybody free stuff. But it's clear what he's saying in the context of this story is like, that shit is actually really potent and kind of politically powerful. <laughs> People love Trump, but of course they love free stuff. It's not really stuff. It's basics in society, like education and healthcare. But see, he knows that deep down. He knows that. He knows that. Bernie's the way to go, man. 
And don't even give me this nonsense, like, oh, well, what about Elizabeth Warren? She's not in favor of fully getting rid of medical debt and student loan debt. She's not. Bernie is. This is Trump admitting, I'm scared of Bernie Sanders. And you know, you know, you know it's real because it was behind the scenes. I don't think Trump would say this publicly. He wouldn't broadcast this publicly. So it's like only when it's on the low behind the scenes. I don't know, man. That one's going to be a little bit tough. So I love this picture, by the way. It's so funny. But there you have it. My instincts and your instincts were absolutely correct, and this is proof of it. Okay, so Trump gave a speech that was opposite the Democratic debate, and uh, while Biden was forgetting what he said two minutes ago, Trump was forgetting what he said two seconds ago. That and the Clean Waters Act, which didn't give you clean waters. By the way, today we have the cleanest air. We have the cleanest water that we've ever had in the history of our country, right? It's almost amazing that his supporters don't catch his contradictions because he couldn't make it more clear. He couldn't make it more clear. He says one thing, and he says the exact opposite. Clean clean water and air act didn't work. Anyway, today we have the cleanest water and the cleanest air. That literally just contradicts the thing you just said. Like, you just said the opposite. Do you... Come on, dude. Uh... Imagine living inside this dude's head for just one day. Because I really do think it's... um, It's innate to his being. It's inherent to his being that he doesn't think about the world in the same way you do. Where, like, as you're talking, you have a constant filter. And that filter is like a little fact checker in your head. Where it's like, all right, is what I'm saying true? And everything gets filtered. And you only say things that are accurate. That's all it it is. All all the time. I got to make sure what I'm saying is correct and bears, you know, itself out in reality. Trump is just like, I make up my own reality. And he's a pathological liar. So, you know, oftentimes it's like he might not even know he's lying. He just, whatever he says, he thinks is the new truth. And to the point where he could contradict himself immediately. Doesn't even occur to him. It's like, it's fine. Yeah, it's cool. It's stunning. But uh, there's a shitty ending to this otherwise funny story. Trump is now rolling back clean water protections because, of course, he is. So as he's saying, you know, uh, the Clean Water Act didn't work. By the way, we have the cleanest water ever now. As he's saying that, he's like, let's roll back clean water protections. 
Why? Because he's a president of buying for big business, of buying for the corporations. For all of his faux populist nonsense, he really is the, just the quintessential establishment bitch boy in every way. When it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to domestic policy, he's given them everything they want. That's why that tax cut bill was like, I mean, that was their wet dream come true. And now he's going, you know, full deregulation mode to the point where, you know, you don't have to worry. Go ahead, pollute the water. It's all good. Who gives a shit? Pretty pathetic stuff, but don't expect any of his supporters to admit that there was a massive contradiction within a time span of two seconds. All right, final story of the day, everybody. I can find the fucking graphic, which I didn't. Okay. Let me add the graphic then. Where is the graphic, bitch? Here it is. There we go. I knew I, knew I was missing something. So there was an ad that ran during the Democratic debate, and it's without question one of the most vile, stupid ads I've ever seen, probably run by some shadowy right-wing billionaire or extreme right-wing think tank. Watch this. She's like, I'm a Republican. And there was another part where she's like, that's socialism. Twitter memes that to holy hell. Oh, my goodness. People were ripping this in 50,000 ways. Um, but listen, that ad, it's honestly, it is almost like an admission of defeat up front. And I mean that because look at how unhinged they are. And look at, they don't make any sense. They don't make any sense at all. Bringing up, like, mass killings and trying to link them to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is in favor of? Everybody having health care like every other developed country. You know what else she's in favor of? Everybody having college, like in, free college, like in most other developed countries. And by the way, like we have through high school. We have free high school. 
pre-K to 12. That's what we have in this country. Is it really that crazy to add four more years to that? You know what she's in favor of? An idea that even Tucker Carlson was like, okay, okay, that's a really good idea. I like that one. What am I talking about? Her first bill, which she did with Bernie Sanders, is a cap at 12% on, uh, for interest rates. So in other words, it's like an anti-loan shark industry bill. So these are the things that she's fighting for. She's fighting for criminal justice reform and legalizing uh, recreational marijuana. There's a list of stuff that she's fighting for. By the way, the overwhelming majority of the stuff she fights for polls well over 50%. People love the agenda. Even Republicans love the agenda. If you take her face and her name off of it and you just lay that, that agenda out, they'd be like, I love this. This is awesome. Since they cannot respond to what she's actually in favor of and what she's pushing for, okay, what do they do? They, first of all, do some weird, like, creepy semi-incitement to violence shit with a, her face on fire or whatever, which is so vile. And then they have to compare her to, like, mass murderers and giant atrocities and genocides. You're just admitting defeat. I don't know how to respond to you specifically, so I'll just be like, I don't know. You're close enough to, like, some of the worst mass murderers in history because you're on the left and they're on the left. And even though you just want health care and college for people. And by the way, she wants to end wars. She wants to end wars. Republicans are pushing to continue wars. She wants to end wars, but somehow she's the one that's got blood on her hands or something. See, they don't, it's, they're not even trying to make sense. This is low, you know, preach to the lowest common denominator, people who already hate her and try to. But again, it's also kind of dangerous because are there people out there who are like legit white supremacists who are, you know, who hate AOC and, and are violent people who might see something like this and be like, she's just as bad as we thought. Yeah. They're not, we're not having a, a reasonable, legitimate discussion in this country. We're having, like, the right is just viciously strawmanning the left in the most caricatured possible way. But again, in a weird way, it's an admission of defeat because you can't respond on the specifics. You can't respond to the fact that she's supporting a bill that probably polls over 70%, the capping interest rates at 12% bill. Like, you can't actually respond to that. So what do you do? And classic tokenism, too, by the way. Get some woman of color to go out there and act like, see, us Republicans aren't racist because I'm a woman of color and I'm a Republican and socialism is evil. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is like historical mass murderers. They're not even trying, man. I don't, like, I don't need to resort to these kind of gross tactics to make an argument against the right. I don't have to do it. All, I could just take... Donald Trump's agenda and his policies and say, see, look how low these polls. There was, there was a time when he, he uh, got rid of Internet privacy rights, and I'm forgetting the exact number now, but if I'm not mistaken, it was in the single digits. It was like a 9% favored uh, proposal that he signed on to, to just gut Internet privacy rights. I don't need to, like, I just need to point out what they're doing to say, look how fucked up they are. How could you, be on, how could you support them? That's all I have to do. What do they have to do? Insanely hyperbolic, twisted straw men comparing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to mass murderers in order to try to make a point. Well, the good news is uh, this, for anybody who's even somewhat reasonable, 
this just goes too far for them. Like, I think of my mom, who was a Republican most of her life. Later on in her life, she became more of a Democrat. I think she's, I don't know what she's registered as, but she votes more for Democrats now, overwhelmingly. But, like, I think of somebody like that. And that's just, they're, she doesn't see this and go, oh, yeah, that's reasonable. She sees this and goes, what on earth are you babbling about, you fucking morons? So, there's a reason why, just so everybody knows, there's a reason why all of the anger and vitriol and hatred and, and all the propaganda is targeting AOC, targeting Ilhan Omar, targeting the Justice Democrats, because they're the actual opposition. They know that the corporate Democrats agree with the Republicans at least half the time and are willing to do their bidding with their shitty agenda. They know that. So target the people who really don't fall in line. Target the people who are actually fighting for the people and fighting for social democracy. And you have to use terrible propaganda to try to make your argument. And they just hammer it away day after day after day after day. And that's the power of propaganda, is that the Fox News bobbleheads are, they've bought into it hook, line, and sinker. But anybody who's kind of not in that cult already is going to look at this and be like, come on, what are you doing? So anyway, that's the state of the discourse. And by the way, ABC approved that ad to run during the debate. Think about that. They approved that ad to run during the debate. I don't know what that says about ABC, but it's certainly not good. Okay. All right, we're done, y'all. We done up in this bitch. Love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Much love. Peace.